the author of Hebrews writes, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What are the essentials of the Christian faith? Another way to ask that question is this. What do you have to believe in order to be a Christian? That's the question asked by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist named Nicholas Kristof in a series of articles he wrote for the New York Times. The series was entitled, Am I a Christian? And he, in this series, he interviews a variety of uh, different leaders from different faith backgrounds, from a, a Unitarian to a Catholic Cardinal to former President Jimmy Carter to fellow PCA pastor Tim Keller. And in these series of articles, Christoph asks this, what does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century? Can one be a Christian and yet doubt the virgin birth or the resurrection? He went on to say this, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I am also skeptical of themes that have been integral to Christianity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. And so he says, let's start with the virgin birth. Is that essential? Or can you just mix and match? This morning, I wonder, how would you answer Nicholas Kristof's question? Is the virgin birth essential in order to be a Christian? You see, the question that Kristof is asking strikes at the heart of what is called the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The incarnation teaches us that as Christians, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He was born of a virgin, incarnate by the Holy Spirit, and God became man. Is it necessary to believe in the incarnation and be a Christian? This question is nothing new. The first 400 years of the church debated this question. Early on in the fourth century, a bishop named Arius began to teach that Jesus was not fully God, that he was created by God to be the perfection of humanity, a perfect example for us. And so in 325 AD, bishops from all over the world gathered in a place called Nicaea, and there they formed the Nicene Creed. They affirmed God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In other words, in 325 AD, they said it is essential. If you're gonna call yourself a Christian, it is essential to believe in the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. 
The question I want us to answer this morning is why? Why is the incarnation essential? Why must you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man in order to be a Christian? Just the first few verses of the book of Hebrews and the author confronts us with this scandalous mystery that Jesus Christ is both God and man. And what I want us to see this morning is that the incarnation is the reason why there is no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ by which we might be saved. So the first way I want us to look at this this morning is this. I want us to be confronted with the mystery of the incarnation. The author of Hebrews says this in verse 3. He says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The author uses three different words in just the first half of one verse that are used here in a way that they are not used anywhere else in the New Testament. The first word he uses is this, radiance. The second word, imprint. The third word, nature. Now what do these unique words tell us? They demonstrate that you can try to use the most meaningful of words to describe the incarnation and they fail to capture its glory. But nevertheless, the author of Hebrews tries. First word, radiance, it means shining or brightness. Somehow the author is trying to give us a vision of, of the mystery of the incarnation using this word that means light radiating from a source. Now the truth is there is such a big part of every one of us that is uncomfortable with the idea of the mystery of God. If we would have our way, we'd want to explain every part of him in order to try to understand him. We try to do that sometimes. But when we do, we tend to make him in our image rather than the other way around. At PCPC, we believe that Scripture is clear in all that it teaches, but that clarity does not mean that we don't need the Holy Spirit to give us illumination and faith. And it also doesn't mean that there isn't aspects of the character of God that remain mysterious to us. And one of the great mysteries of God is the incarnation. So the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of glory. What does that mean? Well, we're told in the book of Exodus that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he was met with the glory of God, a cloud that was like a consuming fire. And there on the mountain, Moses prayed, God, show me your glory. The author of Hebrews is telling us this morning that Jesus is the answer to that prayer. He is a consuming fire. He is light radiating the glory of God incarnate. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We live in a world that is shrouded in darkness. And every day you and I interact with that darkness in different ways. 
sometimes that darkness is outside of us. And we feel and experience the darkness of sickness. The darkness of unkept promises, of relational strife. Yes, even the darkness of death. Sometimes that darkness is inside of us. And as we are confronted with the mystery of God's glory and the person of Jesus, we have to recognize that there is darkness in our hearts, the darkness of sin, the darkness of willfully disobeying God and his commands and committing treason, making ourselves king rather than him. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And there is no corner of the human heart that the radiant light of Jesus cannot illuminate. He is the radiance of God's glory, but he's also the imprint of his nature. The author of Hebrews continues, and he uses a different word, like the word radiance, it's a word that is not used anywhere else in the Bible, unique to this verse. And it's the word imprint. It's the kind of word that would be used to describe like a die or a stamp, meant to impress an image on a coin. My daughters are learning about money right now. They're learning to count it and what each coin represents. I want you to picture in your mind a quarter whose image is on the back of a quarter, the image of George Washington. I want you to think about holding a quarter in your hand. Not only can you see him, but you can feel him tangibly in your hand, what he looks like. This is the kind of word that the author of Hebrews is using. The very character of God, every attribute that exists in God who we cannot see, has now been made visible, tangible, physical in the person of Jesus. And so these two words together, radiance and imprint, together form the paradox, the mystery of the incarnation. It's the invisible made visible, the intangible made tangible, the spiritual now made in the flesh. And you say, okay, well, how on earth does that work? The third word the author of Hebrews uses is nature. Now, it is used in other places in the New Testament, but nowhere is it used like this. The word nature means substance or essence. And typically, I don't use Greek words in a sermon because I don't want you to be distracted and I also don't want your eyes to kind of glaze over and get suddenly bored. But this one is really important. It's very important. It's the word hypostasis. It's where we get the term hypostatic union. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, okay, I'm now even more bored. Let me tell you why the hypostatic union is so important. It's a big, fancy term that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time in one person. That these two natures, his divinity and his humanity, 
are fully present in the person of Jesus. In other words, it's not like his divinity is something that he turns on and turns off. It's not like as he moves through his ministry in the New Testament that suddenly he's like, I think I'll be a little bit more human right now so I can relate to the people and and now I'm going to be more divine. No, he is fully God and fully man. He's not part God and part man. Not 50%, 50%. No, he is 100, 100. Fully God, fully man, all at the same time. Why does that matter? Because that mystery is an invitation for us to fall down on our feet and on our faces and worship him. You might say, well, fully God, fully man. If I can't explain it, then I can't believe it. And so the incarnation just gives you reason for doubt. Others of you this morning say, well, fully God, fully man, I can't explain it, but I know that's what I'm supposed to believe. And so look, pastor, if you're telling me to believe that, sure, I'll buy it. Can I tell you this morning that both are dangerous? The incarnation is not reason for doubt, and nor is it reason for a Christian cop-out. It is an invitation to worship him as Lord and Savior. What does that look like? The author continues in verse 3, and he says that Jesus upholds the universe by a word of his power. Last week we saw how Jesus was there at creation, that through Jesus, the word, God created the universe. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus wasn't just there at creation. He is not only creator, but he is sustainer. He is right now upholding all things by his power. That means he's upholding you. And so here's what the incarnation does with a phrase like that. In his divinity, there is no amount of power that God the Father has that Jesus does not possess. He is in control. And so however out of control you feel this morning, I want you to know that Jesus is in control. He is Lord and he is sovereign and he is holding all things, all things, every intimate detail of your life in his hands. The incarnation also teaches us that in his humanity, he is not sovereign like some puppet master. Some God who's aloof and cold and just making decisions this way and that way because he can. No, the incarnation teaches us that the sovereign God of the universe knows what it means to be tempted in every way that we are. And yet he did not sin. The sovereign God of the universe who upholds all things This same God knows what it means to grieve, what it means to experience loss, to cry real tears of sadness. He is a God who is intimately acquainted with us. Does not that mystery fill your hearts with worship? 
that our great God stepped down into our darkness out of love. The second thing I want us to see this morning, real quickly, not only do I want us to see the, the mystery of the incarnation, I want us to see the mission of the incarnation. In other words, if that's what the incarnation is, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, then why? Why did God become man? Why did Jesus take on flesh? This is the question that an 11th century theologian named Anselm set out to answer in a book called Cordeus Homo. just means why God became man. One historian put it this way. He said, if any one Christian work outside of the New Testament may be described as epic-making, it is the Cordeus Homo of Anselm. In other words, this is a big deal. Why did God become man? This is Anselm's answer. God became man in order to die on the cross. That is why. In other words, there can be no atonement. There can be no cross without the incarnation. This is why the incarnation matters. This is why it's much more than just something we talk about at Christmas. This is why you have to believe in the incarnation in order to be a Christian. Because unless God becomes man in the flesh and dies a real death in our place, there can be no salvation. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, after making purification for sins, Jesus made purification for our sin. What does that mean? It means that he died a sacrificial death in our place. He poured out his body and blood on a cross so that you and I would be saved so that our sins would be forgiven, so literally our sins would be purified. We would be made clean. This cannot happen without the incarnation. The Bible says that you and I, every one of us, every one of us in this sanctuary, every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us have sinned. What does that mean? It means we have broken God's commandments. We have willfully disobeyed him, and we've willfully disbelieved his promises. And we've committed high treason. We have taken him off the throne of our lives, and we've made ourselves kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. That is what sin is. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What's that mean? It means that every sinner, me and you, we deserve to be punished. And the punishment is death. And you say, that seems a little harsh. I mean, can't we just get a slap on the wrist? After all, isn't that what grace is? Now you see, God cannot be God. He is no longer just and he's no longer righteous unless, out of justice, he condemns sin for what it is. And he gives it the punishment that is due, and that is death. That means somebody must die for our sin. Left to ourselves, that somebody is you. 
and it's me. But thanks be to God for the incarnation. God did not leave us alone in our sin, but he sent his own son to take on our flesh. Literally. To become a human being like us so that he could go to the cross and die the death that you and I should have died in our place. I want you to hear these words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you hear the language of substitution? In our place, Jesus bore our grief. In our place, he was pierced for our transgression. In our place, he was crushed for our iniquities and with his wounds, in our place, we are healed. Jesus came down to earth and took on flesh so that he might die in our place so that we might be forgiven. Author of Hebrews doesn't stop there. You see, the substitution of Jesus in our place does not just stop at the cross. This is the wonder of the incarnation. Because the Gospels tell us that on the third day, Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose again in victory and power. Why? Because he wasn't just a man, he was also fully God. And on the third day, the power of his majesty and divinity, Jesus Christ, rose again in our place. Hallelujah. And the victory that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you and me, all those who trust in the promise of salvation in his name. And so the author of Hebrews says, after he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to picture a victorious warrior who has just come from a great battle and won, now sitting down because his work is finished. Jesus, after he rose, after he ascended, the author of Hebrews tells us, sat down at the throne at the right hand of majesty on high. You see, the wonder of the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus is intimately connected to it. In his humanity, Jesus died for us, but in his divinity, he rose again so that you and I could have life. The last thing, I want us to see the excellence of his incarnation. Verse four, writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, having become much more superior to the angels, because the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, the name of Jesus, the name that he has inherited, is a name unlike any other name. More excellent than the angels, more excellent than all of humanity, more excellent than any 
possible person or thing or religion that could try to even offer salvation, Jesus has an inherited a name that is better, that is greater, that is more excellent. His name is more excellent than any other name. Why? Gospel of Matthew tells us when Jesus got his name. We're told the story of the birth of Jesus, Matthew chapter one. We're told that as Joseph learns that his wife, who is a virgin, is now incarnate by the Holy Spirit, and now she's with child, he's dumbfounded. He decides that his only course of action is to divorce her quietly, and an angel comes to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, did you notice how the angel addressed Joseph? Joseph, son of David. That's how people were addressed back then. Today we have first names and last names, and so our last name is the name that we have inherited. Back then was Joseph, son of David. The name that Joseph inherited is the name of David. What name did Jesus inherit? It says this, she shall bear a son. And you shall call him named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What name did Jesus inherit that is more excellent than any other name? He was given the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He is not Jesus, son of Joseph. He is Jesus, son of God. And he has been given a name that is more excellent than any other name. The name Emmanuel. The name of the incarnation. The name God is with us. This is why the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 11 said that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And you say, well, isn't that exclusive? to say that there is no way of salvation other than the name of Jesus? And the answer is yes. It is exclusive and it is gracious because there is no other name by which we must be saved. You and I chase saviors every single day and they go by many different names. The name of comfort, the name of affirmation, the name of our spouse, the name of our kids. Sometimes it's our own name as we try to save ourselves. There are over 5,000 religions in the world today and every single one of them is the exact same. They all try to create a path 
of how to get ourselves to God. There is only one whose story is the exact opposite. Only one name that is not about how we get to God. Only one name about how God came to us. And his is a name that is more excellent than any other name because it's the name of God. His name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So this morning, will you call on his name? Will you recognize that he has been given a name that is more excellent than any other name? Because he alone has the power to save. He alone is God incarnate. He alone is the one who died in our place and rose again so that all who believe in him and his promise could have eternal life. Will you call his name Emmanuel? And will you bow down and worship at his feet because he is God with us. Let me pray. Father, if there's any of us this morning who have not yet called on the name of Jesus for salvation, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would move in their hearts. If that's you this morning, I invite you to pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I call on your name the name above every name. I lay these other false names at your feet and I confess that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I trust in your death and your resurrection for my salvation and pray now that you would give me the eyes to see and the ears to hear, that you would illuminate my heart and give me faith to trust in the great promise of the gospel that you died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. God, for the rest of us who've prayed that prayer before, I pray that you would awaken cold and callous hearts, that the beauty and wonder of the incarnation would invite us to worship, not only this morning, but this afternoon and every day of this week, that we would truly behold the mystery and the grandeur and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man our Emmanuel. We pray in his strong name. Amen.